Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege to gather together, to fellowship together in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What an honor it is to remember you, to remember your good work through his gospel. Thank you for reminding us of all the great news that we've been given through salvation. We didn't earn it or deserve it, Father, but we are so very grateful. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning for a multitude of reasons. We pray for those that are ill, that you heal them and that your will be done, of course. We pray for those that are not sanctified at all this day, that they might be humbled, understand the truth, and be saved. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to usher in this new reality we call eternal life. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 56. This past week has placed the following concept at the forefront of our studies. Um, I've, I've called them interlocking doctrines. It doesn't matter what you necessarily call them, but... The Spirit wants you to know and understand these concepts. On one hand, you have love, and on the other hand, you have obedience. And they are intrinsically, for we believers, they are intrinsically bound one to another. And they're bound by this idea of an if-and-you-will statement, which is really a cause and effect or an implied effect. If this, then that. And it's that matter of fact. And the idea has been that we consider this, these truths, from the perspective of the one who spoke them. That we find ourselves somehow, through learning, through experience, through times like this, through fellowship, we find ourselves in the middle of this sphere of understanding that pre-existed mankind. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Very matter of fact, which makes total sense from within this sphere. If you love me, in other words, if you have this love, you will obey. And he also said in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, in other words, if you obey me, you will abide in my love. And so we have this sort of interlocking thing going on in Holy Scripture that really transcends any religious formula, any attempt at uh, even our sinful selves or our weak selves at watering down the truth of this to to make things a formula. Uh, And if you know anything about the way uh, attorneys work, uh, if there's a formula, if there's just one little path or one concrete way of doing things, then the spirit of the law is lost, and you now have ability to find loopholes The Spirit doesn't want us to do any of that because we're the ones who suffer the consequences 
This is not about religion. It really is about a relationship with the holy God of the universe. And when you find yourself in that relationship, basking in his love, of course you want to obey him. Of course you do. You know what, though? There's a whole lot of other things in this same sphere that interlock one to another. As I mentioned on Thursday, we could populate the inner portion of this sphere with a multitude of God's attributes. And I'm just going to throw some up there. Um, There you go. Oh, they just came at once. They were supposed to build out like real cool, like bubbles. I don't know what happened. Oh, they did? Oh, on my screen they didn't. It just went stall, pop. Anyways, I'm glad you got the full experience. (laughs) Things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know those as the fruit of the Spirit. But also other things like justice and righteousness, etc., All of these things pre-existed mankind, even creation as we know it. And so all of these things are part of what we might call the essence of God. And so we populate this inner portion of this sphere with a multitude of God's attributes. All of these facets that we attribute to God are knit together in our souls as experiences within the sphere of eternal life as real experiences within the sphere of eternal life. Now, regarding this eternal life, the Spirit has also had a lot to say on this topic, um, probably because it's a giant topic for our finite minds to try to absorb. I've had several people, I shared this on Thursday, several people already intimate with me that um, eternal life the fullness of it had escaped them. And some of these folks have been at the Word of God for for decades, frankly. But the idea of eternal life had sort of not taken full root yet. Because I believe it's easy to think of eternal life with an emphasis on the word eternal and immediately fall into that timeline. And that's something our finite minds can grasp. Give me a timeline. Give me something concrete, something serialized, and my finite mind can absorb that pretty readily. It's almost mathematical, right? And so this giant topic of eternal life that transcends all of that, it's difficult for our finite minds to absorb. In fact, I'd argue it's quite unnatural to wrap our arms around this thing. So one strategy, instead of emphasizing the word eternal, is to emphasize it as life eternal. Instead of eternal life, think of it as life eternal. Just flip the words around. It doesn't change anything. Matter of fact, I think it actually makes a little bit more uh, sense in terms of the way we might perceive it up here on the board. What and who is eternal life? God is not only the source of all life, but the embodiment of it. And so we think about life first and that it's actually eternal. So it might help some of you to consider uh, even when death arrived on the scene at the fall in the garden. Go to Genesis 2.16. Genesis 2.16, because we know before that, life was. Jesus Christ, God, is described as eternal life. And obviously God is not a timeline. 
He's much, much bigger than just a timeline or some description of what we know as the construct of time, because he's not even bound by that. So sometimes it helps to see things from a different angle, and I would argue that looking at uh, death and how it arrived on the scene at the fall in the garden gives us a little bit more perspective on life itself. So Genesis 2.16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And that was his promise. So up here on the board, death is actually the opposite of life. In other words, I created you with life. And if you disobey me, think of that sphere, if you fracture a part of what's in me, I have to eject you. You will be ejected because within the sphere of, of life eternal is holiness. Absolute purity and holiness. And if you defect or fracture any part of that, I've got I to gotta cast you out. Because that's not me. And if you want to be with me, you have to be perfect. You have to be righteous. You have to have these attributes in, a pure, in the purest sense of the word. And so that was his promise. If you do this thing, if you disobey, you now fracture. You introduce something that immediately ejects you from this sphere we call eternal life. Up here on the board, the opposite of life then. Death is the opposite of life. It is what God promised mankind in the event they ever disobeyed Him. By its very nature, disobedience is a proclamation of ejection from the sphere of eternal life. I'm choosing. I heard you, Lord. I heard you. You said I was going to die, spiritually and physically. I heard you. So I'm going to make a proclamation to eject myself from the sphere of this thing. I'm going to choose death through the vehicle called disobedience. And experientially, we can say the same thing, not to digress, but we can say the same thing. We experience the vestiges of sin, the effects of spiritual death, even today, when we disobey. But this is the pattern that was set from the outset of death itself. By its very nature, disobedience is a proclamation of ejection from the sphere of eternal life, namely from God. We call separation from God spiritual death, because He is life. If you're not in life with Him, then you're outside of it. And the opposite of life is death. That's why we call it spiritual death. So if you get ejected from the sphere of eternal life, the only other option is death. So we have to think about life as holy. We have to think of life as something that's holy, that is only in God, and for us as believers, in Christ Jesus. So we have to think of life as holy, not just in human terms, the way a medical doctor might think of it. Eternal life is different than creature life. It is something possessed that can only be given to us by God. Think about it. 
unbelievers have life, right? I mean, I could go down the street right now, find an unbeliever. Are they alive? Yeah. But they don't have eternal life. So we have to think of it that way. It's different. We aren't told that other creatures have eternal life, just like we aren't told that other creatures were created in God's image. Or even that other creatures are being conformed, quote, conformed to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. We aren't told those things. That's for humans. So once we understand the... But all those things are alive, right? I mean, you go home... I have a dog. By the grace of God, she's still alive. I don't know how. But in doggy, it's about 190. But I can't say that she's not alive. She's alive. She doesn't have eternal life. Not the way the Bible describes it. She's not being conformed into the image of Jesus. But I am. So once we understand the transcendent aspects of life eternal then even death makes more sense. For example, up here on the board, just to color this a little bit more, these are points of review, of course. When man disobeyed God at the fall in the garden, he had to be ejected from this holy place called life. That's how we think about life. Or more specifically, eternal life or life eternal. Life and death are mutually exclusive. That's why I drew it the way I drew it. I don't do a whole lot of drawing uh, these days, but this, I think, really is an effective way because it's easy for us to visualize being inside the sphere of life itself and then being outside of it because there's an absolute line. So again, just one last time. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. All of that from this perspective. That's all the Spirit's trying to give us, is this perspective. Know that when you read the likes of John or 1 John or uh, just the, any red letters in your Bible, that it, they were stated from within this sphere, which is why they are so absolute, which is also why the human flesh hates it. The human flesh does not cope very well with absolute truth. It likes gray. It likes the idea of gray. That's why a lot of people don't like this kind of teaching. It's because it's way too convicting. <laughs> Christians even, because of their weaknesses, like grayness flowing from a pulpit. Because whenever there's gray areas... What does that allow? It allows the human flesh to play in those areas. To sort of frolic, if you would, in areas that are actually ungodly. But the reality is, from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, all this stuff really is matter of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you abide my love. Ta-da! Doesn't that make total sense? Of course it does. Because that's all exists in the perfect, pure sphere of God. This thing we call eternal life. So that's what he's trying to say to us. And that, that's wonderful because when we go back and read our Bibles now, we can read it with this perspective. So again, none of these things are, or excuse me, all of these things aren't 
or are uh, intrinsically bound together. We could go on and on. It just happens to be love and obedience, two of the primary things that we read a lot about in the Bible. Um, but all these things are intrinsically bound together, not just love and obedience. Love and obedience are a perfect segue into eternal life. But there's a whole lot of other things in the Bible that we read about that exist in the same way and are intrinsically bound one to another. And so when we read Holy Scripture that speaks almost offensively, and if you're in the flesh, it absolutely is offensively about certain things, we find comfort in it. We find comfort because we know that we're actually seeing the truth of the matter as it's plainly stated in Holy Scripture. I really don't want gray areas. I don't know about you. I don't want gray areas. I know my flesh does, but the new creature in me does not want gray. I want to know absolute, because God is absolute. I don't want gray, and I don't want to um, water it down for any of you all. I don't want you to think in gray terms either. And if you're offended, like I wrote that, that blog, Stumbling Blocks, if you stumble over some of these truths, I say, which is very unpopular, even among pastors nowadays, I say good. I say good. If something that comes from this pulpit that is absolutely stated in the Word of God makes you stumble, I say good. That's a very good thing. Because if you don't stumble and something's wrong, what's the end result? You just keep on going. And you keep on existing in a certain type of misery that is the actual fruit of something being ungodly in the first place. It's the stumbling that makes you wake up. It's the stumbling that causes a little, you know, like when you stub your toe, a big sharp pain goes right up to your brain like, ow, what was that? Oh, I stumbled over something. That's not good. The next time around, you no longer go that direction. That's a very good thing. So understanding what's on the board right now results in some amazing experiences. For starters, go to John 15.11. John 15.11. That's all the Spirit's been teaching us. More and more perspective. And it's true, we stumble along the way. Um, we curse uh, along the way. We mumble, we grumble, we you know, try to gather into ourselves ships of fools and you know, we call each other, oh my, oh, oh God, I don't know about this, right? And it's like we try to uh, <laughs> justify our ungodliness with each other. You think it's okay that I'm doing this, right? Oh, sure, sweetie, it's okay. Go ahead. You, and then, you know, the, the favor is returned. The next day it's the other person. Hey, do you think it's okay that I'm doing this thing? Oh, sweetie, it's okay. And you pat each other on the back and that, the whole thing is unholy. And there's really no stumbling going on until one of the two idiots smartens up and says, hey, wait a minute, what you're doing is wrong. Oh, I'm not calling you. You're, you're this, you're that, you're, I don't like you anymore. Let's not be friends anymore. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Because I tell you the truth? What's better? 
to see someone straightened out and you're the, the whipping boy for the day? And then maybe, just maybe, when, you're, when your brother or sister returns, they say thank you. How many times has that happened to you? When someone's act, happened to me literally within the last couple of days, something I had been struggling with for a very long time, and I had an epiphany. And I need to say thank you to someone. I haven't said it yet, but I need to. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, so that. So what is this all about? So that. My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. You see? So you get the sense that Jesus was saying, I want to spread this thing, eternal joy, my joy, to all of you. I want to spread this joy. I want you to experience this joy that I have. It's mine. It's mine to give, and I want you to have it. And I want to spread this joy, which is tantamount to saying, I want to spread my gospel to all of you. That's what it means to live in the gospel reality. It means to abide in it, to be ever grateful for it. And that in itself is the source of really all joy, because unless we're saved, we have no joy. And then he might continue saying something like, I've asked my disciples to continue doing this thing, spreading this joy in my absence on earth. Spreading the gospel. In other words, we might think about all of this imagery in terms of a shepherd gathering his sheep before nightfall. If you were to collapse or shrink you know, all of humanity into one day, before it's all said and done, the shepherd wants to gather all his sheep unto himself. That's what a shepherd does. This is something any good shepherd would do so that the wolves won't pick them off as they wander outside of the vision of their caretaker. So you get that sense that Jesus is just saying, yeah, I want you to realize that you're going to be much happier here in the fold than outside. That's what I want you to know. I'm willing to prove myself to you. I'm willing to show you my love. If you just stop being so distracted, if you stop following the wolves in sheep's clothing, the phonies, outside of the fold, I want you to realize that this is the very best you can possibly have, even in time, is with me. That's what he wants. And he sends, he sends under-shepherds like this one to help that happen, to keep gathering you back, to pull you out of the thicket, to guide you over here, to you know, whack you with the rod every so often, to get you back into the fold because that's where joy is. That's where peace is. That's where um, love is. That's where you experience all the, the greatest blessings. And it's sin that deceives us into believing that there are such things outside. So you get that sense that we have our great shepherds just trying to gather sheep before nightfall. 
Let's read one of the sweetest depictions of Christ's love. Go to Luke 15, 1. Luke 15, verse 1. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to understand the motivation of our Lord even. Luke 15, 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, or near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? This is what a good shepherd does. This is what a good shepherd does. He works tirelessly for the safety of the sheep. Goes looking for them and can't rest until he has counted them all. And in the case of Jesus, our great shepherd, up here on the board, we have this truth as well, John 18:9, To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I lost not one. That means if you're of the fold, he's going to keep gathering you to himself. And he's not going to lose any of you. Again, verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy. You see the joy again? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Again, reading this passage precipitated from reading John 15, 11, which said, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So what's the image? The image is a, a shepherd gathering sheep unto himself and saying, this is where there's joy. And oh, by the way, everyone else in this sphere is going to rejoice along with the shepherd because sheep are in the fold. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And like I wrote in the blog even, what are we celebrating? If we're going to celebrate anything in this life, that's it. That's it. That's what we celebrate. Things like that. His joy. Again, the image, we might imagine this as a shepherd gathering his sheep before nightfall. And that is, as John fifteen eleven said, these things I have spoken so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Now, rather than just leave it at that, the Spirit wants to give us a larger perspective even. Go to John 15, 1. John 15, 1. So, obviously, this, 
Spirit of Christ is being very intimate this morning. He wants you to know why He's pulling you close. He wants you to know why it's important that you understand life eternal. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, put yourself directly on the lap of Jesus Christ in that sphere. Think about the way he's speaking. He's speaking from the center of that sphere. This is his perspective. He says, if you abide in me, if you're one of mine, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, here we go. This takes us back to where we were. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now that's a lot, and your brain might be chock full at this point, but that's just the Spirit encouraging you to take some time after these messages to synthesize what you're learning. After these messages. Some of you are like, whew, that's a lot. That's a lot to consider. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of doctrine in there. There is. There's a lot of intimacy being sewn up in our souls. There is. <laughs> that's why you don't just spend this one hour or whatever, and that's the end of your walk. The encouragement is that you spend all of your time. In a perfect world, we would just spend all of our time worshiping and serving and understanding these truths and abiding in all those things that we saw on the board, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, even. You don't just come to class like this, get flooded the way you just got flooded, you know, drink from the proverbial fire hose and expect to, to walk away completely edified. And everything's going to be perfectly clear to you. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So the encouragement is that you go home and after all of this, and you spend some quality time on your own, synthesizing, um, praying, uh, asking God for more clarity and more clarity and asking God for strength to move away from the things that rob you. To ask God for insight and clarity on things that deceive you so that you might be sanctified or delivered. And to whatever degree all of that happens, to that degree you enjoy love more joy more, peace more, etc., etc., etc. It's just like the imagery I gave you with the shepherd. He's just saying, gather unto me, because this is I'm the author of joy. I'm the author of peace. He says, my joy, my peace, my love. Why? Because I'm the author, he said. The closer you get to me in time, the more you will have of these things. Doesn't that just make sense? I mean, if, 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 if there was a well over there, and there's not, because I don't want anybody leaving right now, if there was a well that would just produce $100 bills, well, he's gone. Really? If there was a well over there and you wanted to be rich, would you get closer to it or farther away? Okay, if that wellspring is everything we noted in life eternal, if you want... More of it, do you get closer to it or farther away? If you want to become wealthy, spiritually, you're going to get closer to it. And that's the invitation. That's what the Spirit's been telling us. You want, some of you are miserable. I, I can see it in your eyes sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. And um, it's because you've chosen to move away experientially. You've been deceived by sin. You've you know, experientially ejected yourselves from all of these promises. It's the craziest thing. But the human flesh is ridiculous. And so that's all that's been going on here. 50, what, 56 parts? 
as we're getting the summary of all this, this is what the Spirit's saying? Yeah, this is what the Spirit's saying. See, I'm trying to gather you unto myself because the opposite direction is you being deceived by sin. The attractiveness. Remember, what, what sets your direction? Your affection. If your affection is to sin and the lusts of the flesh, and etc., all of a sudden your direction swings. Next thing you know, you're walking in that direction. And when you walk in that direction, you're leaving the wellspring behind. That's all he's been saying. He says, I want you near me. I know what's best for you. I know what's best for you. Not your school teacher, not your college professor, not your boss, not your spouse. None of it. I know what's best for you. So the reality is that we need to take time after these messages to synthesize and to pray. And the, the truth is that it takes some time to absorb and even bear fruit on most occasions. That stuff doesn't happen right away. Why is this often such a slow process, you might ask? Because there are a lot of things. Our enemies, first and foremost, that are fully intent on holding us back. In other words, there's a stickiness to the world. There's a stickiness to it. And these agencies, if you want to call them that, they're trying to deceive us into thinking, in a, a system of thinking even, that keeps us in bondage and slavery to sin itself. The lies. Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll give you that. You know, there's some love over there, okay. But look at old, uh, look at old uh, eye-batting chicky over here. Right? Huh? Huh? Look at, you know, look at all the money the world can give you. Now that's prosperity, right? Look at all the, the um, approbation. Or look at all the reputation that the world can give you. You just have to sacrifice that because they're mutually exclusive. Does that not literally sound just like Matthew 4? Worship me. Give up all that. Worship me and I'll give you all of this. It's literally the same, exact same test. It's the same test over and over and over and over and over again. Our eyes get distracted. Our affections go with them. The next thing you know, we're walking in the wrong direction. And we're deceived. And then yours truly or someone that actually loves you and cares, you, cares about you enough to say, hey, wake up. Stubs you, puts something in your path. You stub your toe. And you say, ow! Yeah, ow. You're going in the wrong direction. Wake up. So our enemies try to deceive us into thinking that we shall remain in bondage and slavery to sin. Here's a, a, a little sidebar from this week's blog, which is titled Stumbling Blocks. Go to Romans 6, verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11. 
There's a reason why encouragement like this exists in Holy Scripture. Paul, you know, yeah, Paul was a genius. He was this, that, and the other. But his battles were the same as mine. He was a shepherd that loved the sheep. And so he spent a lot of his time, as recorded in the Bible, as we know, encouraging people to turn around. And I get the, I get the distinct feeling <laughs> with Paul that he was like a walking stumbling block. Do you know what I'm saying? That he wouldn't hold back at all. If he saw you out, remember, he went right up to Peter, you know, the rock, and faced off with him in public because it was the right thing to do. Maybe not, you know, the greatest time to do it, but it was the right thing to do. So he had the same heart that you're hearing right now. Both of them are functions of the great shepherd who just wants to gather unto himself. Romans 6.11 Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is trying to teach us perspective. We call it rightful perspective. And we lose it sometimes. We lose it sometimes. We are dead to sin, being made righteous in Christ Jesus. The only way we can get away from that is that we get deceived. We get distracted. We forget. We stop reading our Bibles. We stop, you know, attending a, a church. We stop reading the blogs. We stop listening to people that care about us even, trying to give us, like, good guidance, good, you know, holy scripture at times. That's how we sort of drift away. And we lose our rightful perspective. We are heirs of the kingdom, right? We are children of God. We forget. We're loved by the holy God of the universe. Come on, is that not a mind blow? You mean he loves me? Yeah, he loves you in a way that you can't even fathom. That's our rightful perspective, though. And that's what Paul was trying to teach. Rightful perspective. Perspective that God has granted us as our own to keep. Don't let sin rob you of that perspective. The one that just made your head nod. Many of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Preach it, brother! I'm just kidding. You guys don't say that. That thing is very good. That means that rightful perspective was resonating in your soul in that moment, and you knew it to be pure and true and right. And that's why you nodded your head. There's nothing in this world that's more pure than that. Any emotion, any feeling, any other love you think you have, even towards other people, it's not as pure as that one you just had towards God. When we finally accept what is rightfully ours, we own the truth about what it means to be in Christ. Up here on the board, this is from this past week. And the truth shall make you free. The truth is unmistakable, unavoidable, immutable. It means it never changes. 
It is also immovable, implying we must be changed. We must be changed, sanctified in other words, to accommodate it, not vice versa. Freedom doesn't happen when we suppose God's going to accommodate us. That's one of the great blasphemies nowadays with the doctrine of grace. People have morphed grace into something it is not. Grace is not God abominating his own integrity to meet you on your grounds because he loves you. That is not grace at all. Grace is, I'm going to let you near me, you undeserving cockroach. That's grace. But you see, in the PC culture, you know what I'm getting at? In the PC culture, that's, that, that is an abomination. The truth is an abomination. That's the great lie. Nobody, no, nobody is more gracious than the holy God of the universe. No one should be more offended than Him. And yet He opens up a pathway back to Him through reconciliation, through His Son. How dare we try to make Him accommodate us? And when we do that, and when we suppose such things, what we learn, what a lot of so-called Christians learn along the way, is there's no happiness in that place. If we errantly suppose that He will move towards us, there's no happiness. What we find out is we scratch our heads and go, where's God? Like, why do I, why do I not have love? Where's my peace? Where's my joy? Where's my contentment? Why am I a miserable wretch still? Well, it's because you, in your ridiculousness, maybe you've been lied to. I don't know. Religion lies all the time. Maybe you think that God is supposed to move to you because He loves you. No. No. The truth is immutable. It's immovable. We have to be sanctified to Him. The sinful flesh despises this reality because it loses all control, of course. Up here on the board, the motivation behind our enemies, especially the human flesh, is to undermine God's desire to sanctify us. The truth kills the power of the flesh, namely sin itself, and that's why we have Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin. Alive to God. On Thursday, I read a great story about the theologian Augustine uh, uh, that's worth reiterating. I got this from McDonald. Um, but he is, he's one of the great theologians of old. It goes like this. One day, Augustine was accosted by a woman who had been his mistress before his conversion. When he turned and walk away, walked away quickly, she called after him, Augustine, it's me. It's me. Quickening his pace, he called back over his shoulder, Yes, I know, but it's no longer me. What he meant was what Paul wrote about in Romans 6.11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He said, that's not me anymore. We don't have that connection anymore because it's ungodly. And I'm not interested. But yet, isn't that what sin, i.e. death, does to us? Doesn't it call back to us? Doesn't it? 
Hey, I remember you. I know who you are. Come on. Just for the afternoon. Let's frolic a little bit. Leave that wellspring behind. Let's go over here. I got some goodies for you. And some of you are laughing because you know that it's, there's a history there. Could be the opposite sex. That's, in my opinion, the most effective one that Satan uses all the time. Could be a bottle. Could be something you roll up in your basement. Some of you are like, it's legal now. Whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. Could be anything. You know, some friend of old. Some sinful crutch of old. Something that gives you some so-called joy. Extracurricular extra-biblical joy. Right? And it calls back to you. Hey, remember the good times we had? Remember that? That was the, that was the mistress. Hey, where are you going? Don't you remember the good times we had? Second <laughs> uh, Timothy 2.22, I'll give you the Amplified Classic. It says, Shun youthful lusts and flee from them. And aim at and pursue righteousness, all that is virtuous and good, right living, conformity to the will of God in thought, word, and deed, and aim at and pursue faith, love, and peace, harmony and concord with others in fellowship with all Christians who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Run away from it. That's the, that's the image we see with Augustine. Whoa, I'm, I'm done. I'm getting, I'm getting out of here. Think about where Augustine ended up as a prominent Christian leader. This woman was a stumbling block to God's plans for him. And to be fair, vice versa. If he had turned around, he would have accommodated her weakness. There's always two sides, right? So I don't always want to just pick on the woman and, you know... Uh, you know, um, say what a dastardly creature she is. There's, it's, always the, it's always two. And so him being the stronger of the two in that moment really did her a favor as well. So just saying, just throwing that out there. But look at where he ended up. And the one thing that delivered him from that situation was the truth that we just read in like Romans 6.11. You're dead to sin. Up here on the board, this came out on Thursday. More practical note on it. Our enemies will use whatever devices they can to deceive us. So don't ever, don't ever be surprised by the angles that our enemies will exploit to gain an advantage. People, say it with me. People, especially the opposite sex, especially the opposite sex, people often represent the lion's share of deception. Now, you can apply that to your own life, um, but that's the truth. That's what we see in the Bible. That's a, I don't know about you, but that's what I've experienced every day of my life. People are always the biggest challenge. That's where we closed on Thursday. Um, let me just press on a little bit. I'm almost out of time, believe it or not. 
We are coming out of the mine shaft still. Just reflect on this. Since the flesh is weak compared to the omnipotence of God, when brought face to face, the flesh uses unholy, deceitful tactics to undermine our sanctification. Since the flesh is weak compared to the omnipotence of God, when brought face to face, the flesh uses unholy, deceitful tactics to undermine our sanctification. It's like if you were to arm wrestle a giant and, you know, right before the ref said go, you kick the giant in the knee. You know what I mean? Like kick him under the table so he gets distracted and you can pin him. Some cheat. Like sin is cheats. It doesn't, it doesn't play by the rules. Do you understand? It doesn't, it's not intending on playing by the rules. If it can, so it can remain looking good, I suppose, and keep some stature for later on, it might. But for the most part, it's going to cheat and lie and steal and do whatever it takes to undermine God's sanctification in you. It tries to keep us away from the light of truth any way it can. Any way it can to keep you away from the light of truth. For many people, I've seen it throughout the ministry for a decade now, for many people, it is the opposite sex. All of a sudden, the opposite sex comes in, all of a sudden, they spend less time in their Bible. And then they spend less time here at the church, or less time reading the, the, the blogs, or less time uh, praying. And it's erosive. It just starts off like, oh, no, it's, to- no, no, it's totally innocent. We're just friends. Really? You're just friends. This is how you're going to posture before the holy God of the universe. You know and he knows what the end of that is. You know because it's like the tenth time you've been through it. And Einstein would call you insane. Right? Because what, you're expecting different results? You want to eject yourself from experiential abiding in Christ Jesus... You want to eject yourself from the, the, the spring, the wellspring of all things good, and you expect something good to come of it? This is your logic? All things are encapsulated here in God, and you want to go outside of His will. You want to fracture obedience. Remember the imagery from the fall even. You want to fracture obedience. And expect what? What is it that you expect over here? Well, I can tell you what sin expects over here. Small little victories. Ways of undermining the will of God. Ways of of, of stunting your own sanctification. I know that those victories exist. From sin's perspective, it's really good that you do that thing. But from God's perspective, there's no good in it. Light darkness and you know how it goes the, 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 the more you get into darkness the easier it is to even be deceived the web of lies uh, you know the deeper you go the harder it is to, you, know, you know what I'm saying you stop fumbling around if I slowly turn this rheostat down and, and it was dark outside right slowly you would stop finding your way some of you would still by scent alone find your way to the food but that's a different story <sighs> <laughs> but you'd start stumbling around. 
And it becomes harder and harder. The deeper you go, it's a compounding effect. And that's why the Bible tells us, stop, flee, get out of there, run away. There's no good in that direction. Your affections have changed from Christ to another person maybe, from Christ to a bottle, from Christ to, I don't know, whatever the thing is that you struggle with, the thing that takes you away from Him. That's all He's trying to teach us, folks. Light, darkness, all good things, everything else. So the deceitfulness of sin tries to keep us away from the light of truth any way it can. And as I just mentioned, it complicates, it um, compounds. It might even grow deep enough roots to get us to profess that we despise something that is actually true. You ever done that? You ever found out later on, you're like, man, I actually despise something that was actually true. I used to despise this thing, and then Holy Scripture set me straight. Here's what the Bible has to say. Amplified John 3.20 For every wrongdoer hates the light and does not come to the light, but shrinks from it for fear that his sinful, worthless activities will be exposed and condemned. So if you're someone who's sitting right here, halfway between light and darkness, let's say, just for a visual sake, every, every moment you live, you have the opportunity to turn around and go back but you see a person who's stuck in sinful living, every wrongdoer, they don't want to see the light. They do this and no longer are convicted, so to speak. So they just go this way, keep going this way. Here's where I ended a couple of Sundays ago. To run away from the light is to run into the arms of sin. To run into the arms of sin is to run into death. To run into death is to suffer the pains of separation from God. Could there be a more miserable existence? Could there be a more miserable existence to literally, by choice, run away from God? Could there be? This seems like an awful way to spend what little time we have here on earth. Seems like an awfully dark existence for someone who has been given full privilege Full privilege to the light. Go to Romans 13, 12, and I'll pick a spot to close. Romans 13, 12. Verse 12. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 
Again, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexuality and uh, in sensual, oh, excuse me, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. Do you understand that word? No, no provision whatsoever. None. Run. <laughs> run, Forrest. <laughs> right? Run. When run away. Make no provision for the flesh in regards or in regard to its lusts. Why? Because what we have, and this is all closed with, I guess, what we have basically is a great shepherd who loves us. And he's basically saying, I want to gather you unto myself so that you can enjoy. I love you. I want you to enjoy the very best. I want you to enjoy all the privileges you have as a child of God. You're my brother and sister, so to speak, now. I call you friend now. I love you. I want you with me. I want you to enjoy these things. I want my joy, my peace, my love. I want you to partake in all of it. But I can't... There's one little thing standing in the way of what I want for you and what you get, and it's you. I can't take away your free will. So that's it. You know what I want. You know what's best for you. Therefore, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Understand? All right. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for proving it to us. Thank you for continuing to shine light upon us. We just ask for your blessings as we Take the things we've learned, Father, out to a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.